Welcome to Relate Your Research, the online podcast featuring social work researchers. I'm Jessica Renarsson and learning should be relatable. Today, we have Lauren Jacobs here with us to share her story on her academic journey and her research, but also the work that she's up to at the moment with regards to gender-based violence. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Yeah, we're really excited. And our theme today, um, which really t- taps into your research, is how faith communities are responding to gender-based violence. And already I feel like we're tiptoeing into some interesting um, concepts and some interesting kind of territory. So maybe you can start the show off for us and just give us a, a background story into how you became interested in quite a controversial topic. And maybe you could also just brief us on what gender-based violence is. You know, this is such an interesting topic and one that I'm so, so passionate about. So I'm so excited to talk about this today. But, you know, ever since I was a young teenager, I always had a pull towards working in the area of gender-based violence uh, ever since I was about 13. And I think that this was very much part of just sensing that this was part of my destiny in life, whatever you want to call it, your calling, just something deep within you. And I felt I really wanted to work in this area. But also, I guess it grew out of the fact that I grew up in a emotionally and verbally abusive home that was incredibly difficult and incredibly hard to deal with. So as a as a young teenager, I thought, I, I really want to understand you know, not only my story, what I was going through, but other people's stories. And then a year later, a lady came to my school. She shared her story uh, with, you know, our class at that stage. She had been through the most intense abuse and intense domestic violence. Her husband even taken an axe to parts of her body. And she shared her story with us. And I was totally overwhelmed by the fact that this was where I wanted to be. I wanted to help people that were victims and survivors. And then obviously, as I got older, it was a journey. It wasn't straightforward. It definitely, I didn't know how or where. So when I went to university, I studied psychology and that became my field. And then it just grew from there. As I was a psychology student, I went into my honors program. I started working with victims of trauma and became a trauma worker and then a therapist and worked a lot in that area. But at the same time, being a person of faith and at about 17, I became deeply involved in my own personal journey of faith. I began to see that women were approaching faith communities for help with gender-based violence. As our faith communities, whatever your faith is, is normally the place where women go to first for help because they see it as a safe space. And I began to hear stories from women that I was helping and working with who told me that their faith communities were not safe for survivors, that they were often secondary victimized. And so I decided that this would be an area of study. I also became a journalist and wrote for different magazines and newspapers on this issue, but then decided I'm gonna, I'm gonna you know, take a stab at my master's degree. And I would do it on, you know, violence against women, which I'll touch on, and also then obviously faith. And, you know, gender-based violence has very much got to do with not only physical abuse, but we know it's got to do with sexual violence. It includes, you know, neglect, abandonment, verbal abuse. It includes emotional abuse, financial 
abuse, spiritual control. It includes so many different things. And so it is such a big area of research, really, and it's important to narrow it down. But I think, you know, any form of violence we're talking about, it happens to men and women, gender-based violence. But of course, my focus has always been on women. So that was kind of the area that I also zoned in on. And for my particular research, I actually zoned in on affluent women in South Africa, wealthy families and women that were from a different sort of background as well. So, but I'll touch on that as we go on. But that kind of was just how I became interested in it, just a sense of this is what I need to do with my life. And it just naturally led to research and writing and then using the research to advocate for a better world and a better, better reality for women who are survivors. Absolutely. And yeah, I'm really just hearing the, the beauty of bringing your own story into research and your own lived experience, your own life and what you're seeing unfold in, in life, mm. which is really exciting. And I think that's something that starts to echo in many researchers' stories is I see this happening in my own world. Let's understand it better. I think that it's so important because it kind of you you kind of bring a deeper passion, I think, to your research and your field because not that someone else can't have that passion, but just because you so deeply, I find for me, I so deeply wanted to understand a lot and to really help other people. There was just this passion and this drive, even though I was really young when I went into this field and I heard that a lot, people saying, you're very young, but I was just totally wanted to understand and had that passion. And I think that that's what makes research so great when you have that passion that just leads you in what you do. Absolutely. Maybe you could give us a little bit of context for your study, particularly in South Africa. What's the current situation looking like? I know it's quite, it's been quite a hot topic in the last few months. So maybe you have some insight for our listeners. Mm. You know, when I did my master's degree, it was quite a few years ago, and it was at a stage where people weren't talking a lot about gender-based violence. I remember my supervisor saying to me, do you really think gender-based violence is an issue in faith communities? And he was totally just, <laughs> and the funny thing was, he was uh, in here Dwemeni, you know, <laughs> so he had like the insight on faith communities. and um, you know. I said, yes, I do. So I think that at that stage, it wasn't out in the open, not just faith communities, but domestic violence itself was always seen as a family matter. And I remember even for myself growing up in my own family, you know, things would happen. And there was always just a narrative of silence. You didn't tell people, you know, and, my, you know, my family was always big about this silence. So I think that we weren't talking about it but really with the Me Too movement, I think the Me Too movement in 2017 really broke things open. Uh, whether we agree with the Me Too movement or not, it's, it's irrespective. What has happened is that people are talking about domestic violence a lot now and gender-based violence. The context for my study that I had started, obviously it's grown, grown, grown over the years. But when I started, you know, all those years ago, not that long ago, but a couple of good couple of years ago, I had to do it in a way that I had to first break through the silence that people were used to and then access, you know, the stories and the research. And that was quite intense. So today, you know, to uncover the reality of abuse in the lives of women, 
it's something that I don't want to say it's easy to do, but it's accessible. You know, we're part of groups now, for example, even on social media, where you have 250,000 people in one group and, you know, more than three quarters of them have experienced abuse. So that's like a huge pool that you could just go in and do research with if you wanted to, but it wasn't like that long ago. But I think today, really people are speaking out about their experiences. But I think that even though we are hearing about those experiences, trauma is very, very deep when it comes to gender-based violence. And so sometimes trauma does affect the way that we remember things and we recall things. And so that is why the research is important and the statistics are important. And we should go in and get those things and not just rely on the stories. So we know it's a big deal today, but a couple of years ago, it, it wasn't. And still today, when we think about faith and gender-based violence, that is, that is not a topic that a lot of people are talking about. Sure. So what was the aim of your study? Personally, I had a few. Uh, but, you know, as, as my, my thesis at that stage, because my research really grew from my thesis, but my thesis was really very specific. But I had quite a few aims personally. I knew that I could, you know, I had a pool of 60 women. And like I said, they were affluent women of South Africa. And I wanted to, because that was my context. I came from an affluent family and, you know, having that, people think money buys you this happiness and it does, it just simply does not. And so I wanted to look at, at that time, you know, seven years ago, there was this whole stigma that, you know, abuse doesn't happen in specific families or abuse doesn't happen in specific homes. Abuse doesn't happen to rich people. Abuse isn't happening to those people, you know, that kind of thing. And I really wanted to break that stigma. So that was the first thing that abuse is not just happening to um, certain communities, particularly in Cape Town, maybe where there's gangsterism and there's violence and family violence. It's not just happening there. It's happening in other places as well. So we need to break the stigma of that. And then also I wanted to know the stories of the women who were experiencing gender-based violence. And largely I wanted to help them give a voice to their experiences that wasn't being done. And I really wanted to know what is really happening with women and gender-based violence from a statistical point of view, because the stats that we have in South Africa, we don't have a lot of stats on gender-based violence. Yes, it comes from certain places, but I've also discovered it's coming out of certain communities and those are lower socioeconomic communities, which is good. We need to know what's happening there, but then we need to look at all different kinds of communities. So I wanted to see what was happening all over and not rely on American statistics because a lot of my, what I found in my research was that we could get a lot of stats from overseas, but not a lot of stats from South Africa. So I wanted to get statistics. I wanted to get the stories. I wanted to break the stigma. And I really wanted to, in the future, develop programs to help faith communities deal with gender-based violence. And I've only started doing that this year because there's only been an interest this year. So it shows you how research can still be applicable, you know, Wow. And as you said, as you start to um, break away the layers and the barriers that had previously been there, the misconceptions, the myths, then it begins to take on a whole new form and in some ways find its relevance in current day. So maybe you could share with us some of your findings and some interesting conclusions that you discovered. Mm, that's, that's really, really good. A good question. 
You know, some of the interesting conclusions that I drew were really what I learned from 60 women that I obviously worked with over a two-year period very closely. But also then again, as I've grown in my own field through the years, a lot of my conclusions have come out of there. But basically, a lot of what I realized and learned was that particularly faith communities are not well equipped to deal with victims. And I say victims because people that are still caught in the cycle of gender-based violence. Faith communities are not well equipped to deal with gender-based violence. And I'm stereotyping, and I know it's a big stereotype, but, but in general, a lot of the conclusions that I that I have heard have been quite interesting. And And one of the things I need to say is that sometimes you've got to break through so many barriers. So for example, one of the questions that I asked these women was, when you approach your faith community, about you know your situation of abuse and what you were experiencing did you feel your faith community was equipped to help you deal with it and some people answered yes obviously and some people answered no but when I went deeper into those who answered yes wow my faith community was so well equipped I really didn't believe some of it because when I uncovered the story deeper then I would hear things like yes I went to my faith leader and they told me that I needed to submit to my husband and I needed to bear this burden as, you know, suffering as Jesus suffered. So therefore I felt that that's what I needed to do. So I went back to that relationship. So I really did feel my faith community was well equipped to deal with my situation. And sitting there, you would think to yourself, But that's not the answer. You can't go back to a relationship of abuse. Yet when you look at it, the person is saying, yes, my faith community was well established to deal with it because they knew how to approach me. They knew what to say, you know, and I didn't feel scared of them. So one of the conclusions I I drew out of this very on a deep level was a lot of people don't want to speak badly about their faith community. And they do feel that if they say that their faith community wasn't equipped or that they didn't get support, that they were actually speaking out against their faith community, which obviously is not the truth. You're just saying what, what is true, but also what I've really learned and what was really hard for me was that, you know, a lot of women had secondary victimization not only through our court system, through the police or through the criminal justice system where women go to for help, for protection orders, and they experience this victimization, but they also have experienced it in their faith communities. And that was some of the interesting conclusions that I I came to back then. Today, it doesn't shock me anymore, but then it did because I really wanted to believe that we had safe spaces. And whether that safe space looks like a church or it looks like a mosque or it looks like, you know, a synagogue, our faith communities need to know how to deal with these things. So that was some of the interesting things that I discovered. And then also, I think some of the things that I did discover that I can't really talk in depth about because it was personal stories was just the extent of abuse that women face, you know, things like women would say, and I can share this, like women would say, you know, that they were raped in their marriages and, and hurt in the most intense ways. And I think that just hearing those stories and and saving the space for those stories and carrying that and allowing yourself to hear those things was actually quite 
it, it was good to draw conclusions from those stories, but they can also be quite challenging to hear those stories. So I think that the interesting things that I've concluded is that our faith communities need help uh, in dealing with this. And today, 2020, we're actually starting to see this happen, which means that there is some, some good things that can happen, but we just need to push forward. Absolutely. Wow. So what were some of the challenges that you found in researching gender-based violence? It's obviously something that, as you say, different people perceive and understand differently. And maybe you could share with us some of the, the hurdles along the way. I think the biggest hurdle for me personally uh, was the statistics. <laughs> like, you know, I was... I was never really good at maths, but this, that's, 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 you know, just me personally. That was really challenging. I was never really good at maths. So having to get all those stats out, that was a challenge. That was one of the hurdles. But on a deeper level, the kind of research that I wanted to do was very much on the ground research. And so at that stage, like I said, it wasn't like you're part of a Facebook group and you can put something out there and be like, who wants to be part of this we answer questionnaire it was really just the challenges for me at that stage was finding people that would share their stories and yeah. that would go deep with their stories and doing it for research you know knowing that i'm sharing my story with a researcher and so i'm just going to be telling it so one of the challenges i found was getting to the research at that stage you know mm -hmm finding people. I started advertising in the newspaper, you wouldn't believe, for respondents. Sure. <laughs> At that stage, I was like, I'm, this is a random pool. So I'm pulling them randomly from anywhere and everywhere. And I wanted to, to be like interprovincial and across everywhere in South Africa. So I started advertising in newspapers and things like that and saying, if you want to be part of this research, you know, send me this information. And I had this whole thing worked out. So it was, that was the challenge for me. Probably people's challenges will all be different. I didn't do a quantitative research, you know, so I didn't need any books and I didn't need to lay out any finances in that way. But really, I had to get people, you know, to me kind of thing and to try and figure out how to tell their stories in a way that was also going to be honoring to their story, but then also just make it research, so to speak. So those were the challenges and it, it worked itself out. It was good. Definitely. You've touched on this idea of storytelling and that totally intrigues me and gets me all excited because I think that's something as qualitative researchers we don't often celebrate enough is just the, the depth and the value that comes from people's stories and the, the narrative that researchers actually do bring out in their research. What makes storytelling and qualitative research so vital when dealing with topics like gender-based violence? I think it's it's so important to connect the two together and to have the two because like with gender-based violence, it's really the story, someone's real story that gives you the depth of understanding of what it means to survive gender-based violence. And I think, so for me, you know, like I shared right at the beginning when I was 14 years old, seeing a woman stand up and share her story and, and, you know, like I said, she had axe wounds and she had a husband that had axed parts of her body, you know, and it was so incredible to hear her story that really as a 14 year old jogged my heart to want to be 
and make a difference in this field. So I think that storytelling is so important and we underestimate the the power of those stories. I actually decided that I was going to be sharing stories. It didn't start out like that, but for my master's thesis, I decided I was going to take a lot of the stories that were shared with me. And I asked, I wasn't prepared to do that. I wasn't going to, but just the depth of what had been shared with me. I asked, you know, the people that I interviewed, can I share parts of your story anonymously? And they said, sure. So I did that and it changed the whole layout of my research because those stories are so vital. So for me, I mean, I I was a journalist, a social justice journalist, a writing journalist for many years. I've traveled all over the world. I've gone to, for example, West Africa to discover what was happening with uh, female ritual servitude where girls are offered on altars for sins of their fathers. So, for example, if you're sitting there, you have to hear those stories, you know, and you have to take that story, even though it's a bit of research, you have to take those stories and, and hold them. And then I found that when I wrote those stories and shared them, because I shared them in different magazines, I found that people could connect with it. And I think that's also what we want to do with, with research. We want people to connect and then connect with it, think about it, and then maybe start a narrative about it, you know, start a conversation about it. Say, you know, get, get, get people thinking. It's so important. And when dealing with gender-based violence, the more stories that we hear, I truly believe that the more we want, will take action and it's the stories of the women that have lost their lives over the last year. And I think of the, you know, Uyaneni who was killed at the post office. It was that story that stirred this massive protest that we had last year, August. So when yeah. we talk about gender-based violence, it has to connect with storytelling. And it's those stories that can cause us to be active in making a difference. Sure. Well, this topic becomes controversial because people tend to rarely see it in different lights. How have people responded to hearing about your research? What are some of the kind of areas that you'd like to blow open that people should start to talk about? It's so true. It does become such a controversial topic. And it was a few years ago. Uh, about six weeks ago, I was part of an amazing Zoom actually, that was a conversation, a two hour conversation with 70 clergy members all over South Africa, and there were five panelists. I was incredibly blessed to be one of those panelists, and the whole conversation was about, you know, faith and gender based violence. And the facilitator did it in such a beautiful way. And she said, There's going to be a lot of uh, conflicting emotions, there's going to be a lot of pain that we're all going to experience here maybe some of us will or won't but we have to start having these conversations and just kind of being in a room in inverted commas with people who were suddenly willing to talk about not only their experiences but also some of them had been you know had survived gender-based violence others of them were just trying to be you know good faith leaders for survivors you know even though it has been controversial people are starting to respond in a way that they want to learn. They want to know, they want to understand. And I think that for me personally, as a researcher, I have seen that people have responded really well to the things that I've presented to them. I have 
not yet, and I pray that never happens, had people been really otherwise about it. I have had people say to me, why is your focus on um, women, specifically in gender-based violence? Why is your focus not also on men? Now, I totally hear that. And to be honest, I wrote an article about men being abused. And I had so many emails of men reaching out to me for help. I don't feel equipped to help them, but I can send them on to those who I feel are. So I think that a lot of people say, why just women? That it's not just because women are experiencing gender-based violence. It is just because that is my field. I can't cover everything. I'm only one person. So I think that people have responded really well. And uh, to those who get concerned about the fact that men are also being abused, that's, that is so important. And I have colleagues that work just with men that have been abused. And that is great. But that's not really my field. Uh, I don't feel that that necessarily is my calling. Yeah. Absolutely. And do you feel that the church is stepping into a role of being more active and more present to this issue? I think that some of them are. I, I think universally they are not. I think that, you know, I have family members, for mm-hmm. example, who are faith leaders and they just are, they don't want to talk about gender-based violence because it's, they kind of see it as heavy. You know, we want to give people hope and we want to inspire people, but we give people hope also by dealing with hard issues. You know, we can, can give a victim in our, yeah. in our place hope by speaking about what they are going through and not by hiding the perpetrator of abuse who is sitting next to them, for example. So I think that it is happening, but I think it's very slow. But I'm excited to see that in South Africa it's happening because there's been a lot of talk about the church in the States and the church over there, you know, and in Ireland and in the UK, they're stepping up and it's great. But we need to be focused on what we're doing here. And so I think that there are a lot of churches that are, um, but it's more the minority as opposed to the majority. But I'm hoping that a snowball is going to start as more and more people get involved. Sure. And as you say, it's, I mean, the church is one facet of the faith communities we have here in South Africa. So it really is about coming together with a common goal. Exactly. Yeah. Do you have any other recommendations you would like to share? Who do you think needs to be aware of this kind of research, this kind of dialogue? I think that uh, basically I really feel like theological students need to be aware of this dialogue mm-hmm. because I think that sure. if, if a, you know, one of the things that somebody said on this Zoom that we had a few weeks ago that I referenced um, she said, "Why she's in youth ministry, and she said, why aren't we being equipped as students who are also working with young people, why aren't we being equipped in the area of gender-based violence? Why aren't us as students, theological students, why aren't we getting training in this area so that when we go and get active in our faith communities, then we know how to deal with this and we start dealing with it from a very young age, you know? You become a student when you're 18 or 19 or 20 and sometimes older. So if you can get equipped in this area, so you could be really, really effective in your community. So I think that who needs to be aware of this is definitely theological students and would be amazing to see a gender-based violence and faith program actually taught in seminaries. Uh, It would be amazing to see that. That is not happening. 
And I imagine what it could look like if that was the case. But then also people that are, you know, survivors, people that want to make differences in their faith communities and just the general public in, you know, at large. Because I remember very clearly last year, August, when we were losing a woman to gender-based violence every single day. August 2019 was such a traumatic month. And I remember people saying to me, now I, I mean, why people were saying it to me, it was as though there was this hurt and people were turning around and saying, you know, Lauren, where are the faith communities? Why are they so silent? And I remember people having this collective thought of the church or, you know, our faith communities, not just the church, the mosques, the synagogues were so influential in walking a road that was against the apartheid government, for example, or bringing about those changes. We see faith leaders of different faith communities. So part of what was happening, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, they were not keeping silent. They were leading protests. They were making their voice active. And so, you know, when we drive to Cape Town and we drive underneath those bridges that go over Woodstock, there's some of them that are named for Father Basil von Rensburg, for example. These were all faith leaders that were prominent in their communities working against social injustices. So why is there a silence today? So people want to know, why is there a silence? And if there is, why aren't our faith communities so involved as they used to be in these issues? So I think that for just general people who want to know, I think that research like this is important to say, you know what, there are people that are willing to to do more about it, but it's not just going to take one person. It's going to take a lot more people. So that is, I think, who needs to be aware of it. And definitely, like I said, theological students, seminaries need to start being active in this area as well and teaching people and equipping people properly. Sure. And really a call to action, as you say, on the advocacy side and on the research side. So, yes, the research is important, but how do we then transfer and translate that into real action, which is very exciting. And you really um, got me excited about <laughs> this because I feel like it's the heart of research. And um, that would be my next question is, do you see further opportunities for research with this topic moving forward? Mm, I definitely do. I actually, I actually, you know, was thinking about this as a PhD candidate. Now I was thinking about what would it look like if I was going to go into a PhD program. And so I was thinking about further research opportunities and topics related to this, what I'm talking about today. And I was thinking there, there is definitely so much, I think that we need more research done in South Africa on this particular topic. And I think that we can go into the different faith communities. You know, we could look at what's happening in mosques. We can look at what's happening in the Jewish community. We can look at what's happening in different denominations. We can look at what's happening on the ground. We can look at all of that. But also one of the things I'm involved with now is developing a first responder program for faith leaders, particularly of churches. So how to be a, a first responder. I was a first responder for trauma work. So I used to work with the police and in the hospitals, going to on-site trauma, 
as a first responder. I did that as a volunteer yeah. just because I wanted to. So you responded to all kinds of traumas, so all sorts of things. But being a first responder is very different to being a counselor or therapist. You know, that's a very long journey. Being a first responder is when someone approaches you and says, I'm being abused, what must I do? And so faith, faith leaders, you know, need to be know how to be first responders. Then they need to know how to counsel people if they are survivors. Then they need to know how to transform the church to become a safe space. Then they need to know how to and start analyzing theology that is holding us back from being proactive in the area of empowering women. So that's another aspect of it because there's lots of theology that's been used to say women must just keep quiet or women must just this or you must just submit and that further causes gender-based violence. So that is that is a huge research opportunity to look at theology and unpack it that's causing these problems. Then we need to look at you know what's happened in the past, what we can do in the present and we also need to look at stories of women who you know, went to their churches and didn't find the support that they needed and then fell away from the church or fell away from their faith. I met a lot of women like that. And just to hear their stories is so important because they were just terribly hurt by, you know, their faith communities. And I understand that. And so we need to even research that and say, what can we learn from their experiences as well? How can we do better? And I think that just the opportunities, programs need to be developed from this research as well. I think that research needs to drive our programs because it tells us mm -hmm. what is really happening. And so, yeah, there's lots of research opportunities. And I just really wish and pray and hope that more people will get interested in this conversation and this topic so that they will do that research. You know, like I keep saying, it's going to come down to more than just one or two people it's going to come down to a lot of people so I really hope people can get into this topic definitely are there any important resources available for people that you would like to mention um, we could link them in the show notes below that would help people support or join in this conversation against gender-based violence you know there are just there are absolutely so many important resources available Again, it, it, it does become tough, uh, you know, if people are looking for a specific kind of books to access the information. I know that people like to read about it, but I, I can't necessarily say to them what kind of books they should read because a lot of that is, is US-based stuff. But I do know on the advocacy side, you know, one of the big organizations doing a lot against gender-based violence, and I do believe that they will become a force to be reckoned with you know, in our present and our future is an organization called SA Woman Fight Back. Mm -hmm. And I know the founder really well, and they are doing amazing things. They've developed a really great app for women and a lot of those kind of things that you can connect with them. And they have protests and they have, you know, resources they bring out. If you're interested in faith specifically, uh, in faith and gender-based violence, I completely recommend the South African Faith and Family Institute, founded by Elizabeth Peterson. And they're doing phenomenal work in faith communities. They have trained facilitators that go into faith communities and teach, and they work across faith communities from, you know, Buddhism to, to Catholicism to 
to Islam. They work across faith communities. So they have facilitators that can go into teach and they can talk about things. They have wonderful tools and resources and workshops. And then also we know that they're doing great work. And then the Desmond and Leia Tutu Foundation are doing great work with gender-based violence. That is specifically if you're interested in that. And then the Council of Churches again, and also We Will Speak Out is a wonderful platform on Facebook. And so from my side, you're so welcome to connect with me because I do a lot of, you know, not only advocacy work today, I'm a radio journalist, so it's no more really focused on writing. But yeah, I have a website that people can visit. And if you, I love to do talks about this issue and I have done a lot of facilitation on it and just connect with people that want to share their stories as well, just to hear and to see what's up and what's happening. But I, yeah, I think that those, that those are a few good places to start with. Yeah, that's fantastic. And there's an open invitation for our listeners to really engage with the links that are below and, and the information that's out there. Any final thoughts for our researchers out there who might be listening, who are intrigued in this topic or who are contemplating tiptoeing into the research world? I think a final thought is just to go for it. I feel like research always seems like a mountain when you're looking at it because you've got to break it down into those smaller manageable steps. So if people are standing on the sort of the edge of the river looking to go into research, I would really say, you know, just really, really go for it. Break it down into manageable steps and your research really does matter it really can have a massive impact on people's lives and, you know, can stir change, but can also help you understand, you know, what you're researching and what you yourself, you know, want to understand why you went into this research, what your goal was. And that is very fulfilling at the end of it, when you look back at it and look at what you've done and achieved and say, wow, you know, now I understand this and I can move it forward. And also for those who maybe are in the middle of research and, you know, the middle is where it gets messy because you're in the middle of two places and you're like, okay, I've done this work. How do I, what is this for? And it can get so overwhelming. It's just to really keep going. And I also want to encourage researchers to make their research available. I know that it's not easy and I know that sometimes it is is costly. So look at those places that are out there that allow you to share your research. Maybe, you know, that you can upload. I don't know if academia is free to put your research on or things like that so that people can really lean into your research. I am, you know, I'm a book writer, so I write about women's history and I rely a lot on research. So my research comes down to research that other people have done as well on the field. So I need them to be uploading their stuff so that I can access it and further understand. So I think that research is so fulfilling. It can be very impactful. And so I just encourage people just to keep going to please do it. Please make it accessible. Please make it you know available to us. And it has and does serve a greater purpose. That's amazing. Lauren, thank you so much for sharing your passion and your heart. Um, I know this was such an inspiring topic and um, I hope that it really lights a a spark in in just reigniting people's conversations around gender-based violence. 
Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you so much for this wonderful, wonderful podcast and for having me today. And that's a wrap. Thank you, Lauren Jacobs, for sharing with us your research on gender-based violence in South Africa and the role that faith-based communities play in helping and stepping forward in intervention for those in need. We're really excited to come to the end of our podcast series for 2020. It's been a crazy year. Thank you for sharing um, this journey with us. And we're looking forward to, to kicking off 2021 with you all. Have a safe festive season. I'm Jessica Renarsson and research should be relatable.